Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome back, everybody, to the Self-Storage Income Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Live Oak Bank and Janus International. Live Oak Bank is a partner that we've chosen to have as our sponsor because of the incredible work they do in the self-storage industry specifically. They know storage. Their teams are very knowledgeable about the asset, the asset class, what you can and can't do, how things are valued. Super, super important to have those kinds of partners on your side, and Live Oak Bank can be those partners for you guys. We've had an amazing feedback from so many people out there that have reached out to Live Oak and have had amazing experiences with them as well, which is so cool to hear, and one of the reasons why we've specifically chosen them to be our sponsor on this podcast. So link is in the, in the show notes. Go check out Live Oak Bank. Get at them. Get all your questions answered, figure out what direction you're going to go, and get that financing and funding figured out. Our next sponsor, Janice International. Amazing solutions for you guys, whether you're building a new facility or you're trying to upgrade an old facility. They have a lot of amazing options and solutions for self-storage owner and operators to bring their facilities up to today's standards, and to also help you guys build some of the most state-of-the-art facilities that you could possibly be building right now that help meet that user expectation and that, that, that we all have really at this point where we want things on demand, we've got to have it right now, it's got to be easy, convenient, all that stuff. Janus International provides that. They provide great solutions and uh, valuable solutions and they too, like Live Oak Bank, they have dec decades of experience in the self-storage industry. Amazing people. Link is in the show notes. Get at them. And with that said, enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the AJ Osborne and Self-Storage Income Podcast. We're doing a two-for-oneer today. Double whammy. That's right. <laughs> we think it's, it's an important good. topic. So... Um, it's one that we decided this, this really needs to be discussed. Cause I mean, this really involves everything from, um, I mean, personal finance, commercial, on and on and on. And the topic to today that we've picked is really how debt makes you or breaks you, right? Is it safe? Is it not? Um, what really when dealing with debt? How's it work? And I think a lot of people want to make a very simplistic black and white approach to debt. Um, and that's not how it works, right? Debt doesn't work like that. It's not like there's just either a right or wrong and no matter what you do. And we want to dive into the forces of debt and at the end of the day, how debt can make you or break you. Um, because it can. And I know... You know, so many people have a bad experience with debt. And 
In fact, I'd argue to say the vast majority of people have bad experience with debt. They either have to pay it or whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. And we do have simple rules, right? There's simple rules like consumer debt. So if I, if I was to put it simply, consumer debt's bad and revenue generating debt is good. Um, but it's more nuanced than that. It's really not that simple um, because risk is not black and white and it is not simple like that. There is a lot of things that influence and drive risk that um, I, I guess this is really though, it's just kind of an overall problem that we have right now in society is we don't think things are nuanced, even though they are, we just take hard lines and we don't look at certain way things are working and how they're working. I mean, obviously we see this in politics. It's like, they think things happen in an isolated thing. Like, if I do this, it's either good or bad. Mm-hmm. Well, there's repercussions of actions and there's repercussions of what we're doing in our life. And debt can leverage repercussions for everyone, for governments, for individuals. Now, first of all, I want to totally clear the air, though, on fundamental principles of debt, right? Debt is money and money is debt. Okay. This is just how the world works, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we have different markets, okay? We have capital markets, right? You have um, markets that are actual, like money markets. We have stock markets. We have debt markets. We have all these markets. And these markets are moving in coordination with each other. We have supply, demand, right? Um, but when you look at overall more money markets, so stock market, debt market, um, actual money, like dollars, yen, hey, I, um, when you look at these different markets, these are what I would call foundational markets because they're, found, they're, they're markets that everything else is built off of, okay? And when we're talking about money, it's important to understand these foundational markets because they all intertwine. Um, I think that like if in society in as, as an individual, we can shield ourselves from these market, right? Like you can shield yourself and never even really understand how all of this is working. You don't need it to have a direct effect on you. And what I mean by have a direct effect on it, it does, no matter what you do. But it's not one that you see or feel. So, mm-hmm. and, and this really does come with employment situations, W-2, all that kind of stuff, right? Whereas when you are an investor, um, particularly for investors, they are very sensitive to capital markets and changes in it, right? Like it, it, it dictates how they do business. It dictates what they do when they do it. So capital markets are very important to them. And so they're paying attention and they really need to understand it. When um, when I was... So I was working and, and I was out selling and I was doing a whole bunch of stuff when 2008 hit, right? I was trying to invest. We had a couple small facilities. I was really trying to get into multifamily home. Um, but after 2008 hit, 
it w- it hit me like a ton of bricks from a standpoint of not financially. I didn't go bankrupt, anything else like that. Um, it hit me with a ton of bricks and I was like, I have no idea how the world works. It was one of those situations where almost you feel exposed or vulnerable because I was sitting there in my young 20s saying, all of a sudden, everything on the news is about the government and it's about why money's gone, why it evaporated, why did everything. And I'm trying to understand this because I'm trying to get started. I'm trying to make this work. And um, I didn't get it Mm -hmm. at all. It's terrifying when you think about I mean, I've had moments like that where, you know, where there's discussions here in the office or you listen to podcasts or audiobooks, <clears throat> and you kind of have one of those aha moments and get an understanding of how some of these things are working in the economy. And, you know, whether it's debt or capital currency, whatever it might be, uh, these, these different markets we're talking about, um, it's kind of terrifying to look around and, and, and know that the majority of people you know, out and about, you know, driving, whatever it is, don't understand some of these things and how, what a, a massive impact that they have on their lives. And again, like you're saying, that total lack of understanding and lack of control that they put themselves in uh, is is not a good place to be. And two, we have to remember that we all have to decide. We're voters. We're living in society, and we have to decide how things that we want like how things should be implemented, how things should be run. Yet the vast majority of people don't actually even know how things work. Mm -hmm. They don't know what's happening, what's creating systems, how we even got to this point. And debt is one of those big things, right? The the financial education in this country is horrific, is not even the right word. Um, They really don't even know where their paycheck comes from. If it existed, it would be horrific. Yes, if it existed, (laughs) it would be horrific. And yet we make decisions and we're thinking about per, or in our personal life and public and how things work based upon these things. It's like people that don't want to talk about money. That doesn't make sense. Do you just want to not talk about anything? Like how the world works? Do you not want to understand why the sun comes up? Do you not under, want to understand why you get sick? Do you not want to understand how babies are made like it's it, that's just such a stupid <laughs> fundamentals here guys yeah it's like it's <laughs> you know this is the basics of all basics and honestly money affects probably more percentage of our lives than anything else yet and people get that but they don't then take the time to understand a lot of these things that didn't ever make sense to me. And so I got kind of obsessed with it, right? In fact, I, I one day, we, we found out we were pregnant. And my wife thinks it was the day we found out that we were pregnant. Maybe it was. But um, and according to her, her story is that I was like, hey, I got to go do something. And I like walked out the door. And I come back like three hours later. I'm like, okay, I, I, I'm back in school. I'm getting my MBA. I don't know if it was quite like that. <laughs> but it was it was pretty close. So, um, and the reason I went and got my MBA, I was never going to make money from my education, like that. I wasn't. There was no job to get. Any, I was a salesman. I got whatever I wanted. Um, it was purely because I was cons- I was reading everything I could and trying to consume. And I'm like, I need a quicker way to consume knowledge. That's it. Mm-hmm. So I just simply went back to try to understand what was happening in the world. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that was great, everything else like that. But I kept reading and trying to understand how the world works. So first of all, we're going to talk about the money markets. We're going to talk about the debt markets. There's nothing that we can, we cannot cover enough in this podcast, though, to really make you feel super informed. So you need to be digesting. And this is a lifelong thing because these markets, these capital markets that we talk about, they change Mm -hmm. and they are extraordinarily influenced by government policy. So they change a lot. Um, Now, that is kind of the intro to this. Um, This is an important subject that you should put at your top of your lists to understand. It's also funny because I feel like most people thought that macroeconomics was like a voodoo science and there was no reason to pay attention to it at all. Um, But then after 2008, we set precedent with government's intervention into capital markets that was unlike anything we'd ever seen. Um, we, the U.S. government basically took over the banking system. Not basically, it, it did to a large extent. Um, and it became our financial institution. That was unprecedented. In the United States, that's never happened. We didn't ever think it would, right? That was so extreme. Um, but it set the mode of operations for the world to work after that. And we saw this again in COVID. It was one of the reasons why right in the heart of COVID, when everything was shutting down, this was when we really thought COVID was really bad. Like it was when we were seeing on the TV that like in China, there was just bodies lying all over the ground, right? Which turned out to be kind of bogus. So, but at that time, everybody was terrified. Like I was scared, everybody was. We thought, oh man, Everybody might die. This could be it. This could be it, right? So the whole world shut down. Um, And we got pretty aggressive. And we went and bought huge buildings that were bankrupt. We got multiple deals. Um, And the reason why we made a move in this three-month period of time and got these awesome deals at massive discounts was because I believed so firmly in moral hazard. And moral hazard was that statement that was thrown around in 2008. Like, if you do this, you're setting precedent. And now, this is how you're going to react to everything, right? And that's the scary thing. Like, if we do this once, we're going to do it always again. And so that was the big debate. Like, should the government be doing this at all? And even though they're like, oh, it's for a short period of time, but what everybody talked about and the scary thing was moral hazard. It can be repeated and we can do this again, right? And that was the same with the banks, right? That was one of the big problems of bailing banks out. Moral hazard. They have no reason not to be stupid if mm. they don't if they're not penalized for it. So on both sides, people were worried about moral hazard. They were worried about the government and the banks. Government, you just take over the industries. You took over the car industry, you took over the banks, you take over all these industries, right? And they're doing it for the safety, which, by the way, I believe they should have. Okay? So, I believe it was so bad. If they wouldn't have done that, um, we would be in, I mean, we would, it, it would have been, the depression would have been lightweight compared to what would have happened. I mean, it, it honestly, we could have been set back to like a third world country. It was that bad. Right? So, I, I understand why they did it. The U.S. financial system was done. It was over. Um, with COVID, no. That was total overreach 
and they used the playbook from 2008 and implemented it. And I believe that was completely wrong. You weren't saving a financial system. The financial system was fine. Money was readily available. Mm-hmm. And they were stopping problems that they caused, right? So in 2008, the government was stepping in to save a financial system that had screwed us and itself. They should have saved the financial system, but they should have penalized the banks. They had a chance to break up big banks that were too big to fail. They had a chance to penalize these banks and do a lot of things that I think would have been very good. They didn't. It was a knee-jerk reaction, right? Um, with that said, in COVID, they didn't. There was, they caused it, and they they got us sick. And then they provided the vaccine, to use a COVID reference here, right? I'm not going to get too far into this. The point being is the government's intervention is how we determine macroeconomics, right? So macroeconomics is dictated by the government's relationship with private markets. So before 2008, most of us had never lived through not most of those, pretty much everybody had mm-hmm. never lived through a time where governments had really worked in that way. And so it was just, and we'd just gone off the roaring 90s, right? I mean, everybody had had it good for so long. There was free markets, there were everything. Um, it just wasn't something a lot of us thought about. So it, everything was microeconomics. Where And today, I think a lot of people, particularly in my age, that are more interested in economics are probably now more interested in macroeconomics than they are mar- micro because of the relationship between the government and private markets. It's so much more distinct. They just pay for businesses now. They just bail out banks. They just pay for salaries. They j- It's... It, 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 it's kind of out of control. But the point being is the p- capital markets are <clears throat> severely influenced and controlled by the government. So you can't have a, it, it, when you're dealing with capital markets, there is no discussion without discussing government policy. So I'm not trying to be political here in any way. We're not talking parties. We're not talking anything like that. But in macroeconomics, you cannot have a conversation about macroeconomics without talking about government policy, because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the relationship primarily between the Fed it's re- and how interest rates are imposed and how they constrain or grow capital markets. So first of all, we have to realize there are long-term and short-term debt cycles. Um, short-term debt cycles, we call them business cycles. Those are primarily government-influenced through the imposing of their main lever, to change capital markets, which is interest rates. And interest rates are used to contract or expand money supply. That's it, right? So if we raise interest rates, everybody stops borrowing, money supply contracts, you have a contraction in the economy. So the vast majority of recessions are government imposed. They're trying to slow down the economy. It's too hot, there's too much money. This is a problem. We're gonna get inflation. Right, all things that people are talking about today. Then you get that contraction, things start to fall, there's not enough money, we need to expand money supply and too many people are saving, they're not investing. We're starting in a realm of what you call maybe deflation. That means asset prices are lowering instead of rising. Um, And deflationary uh, effects on assets are really, really bad. That's what creates depressions. Deflation leads to depressions. And it's because asset prices keep falling 
And then nobody wants to buy assets anymore because they say, why would I buy it today when it's going to be cheaper tomorrow? So everybody stops buying assets and all markets start to collapse. Housing, stock markets. And every time when people think about equity or they think about these markets like money markets, right? Like debt markets or stock markets. Um, when those things lower, it's just not something you see on the TV. This is an evaporation of money. These companies have no more money. People can't borrow. And borrowing is how virtually all companies exist. So what happens is cash flows in most companies are irregular. So they have things like lines of credits. So in 2008, when the capital markets shut down, even healthy industries and companies that were outrageously profitable failed because the system in which their business ran, the capital markets, they needed debt to turn over product, to turn over payers, like the system, their system is dependent on that system. That system shut down and they had a very profitable functioning venture. It could no longer operate because they had no longer access to a system that made them work. And this happened at mass. So then that exasperates a problem. Even the good businesses start to fail. Now no one's safe. So deflationary cycles are super scary because nobody knows when the bottom is. And that is an evaporation of money. So stock markets are crumbling and companies that were worth billions are no longer. They start to have to cut cost, right? It goes on. So the government steps in, they make money as cheap as they can or basically free. Now, what happens is inflation comes. Well, inflation kills the worth of your dollar. So what do you do? You hedge inflation by buying assets. So what they're trying to do then is they lower the cost of money to get people to buy assets and stop deflation by making their money worthless. This is this cycle that goes on and on and on, right? It's never ending. The Fed's watching everything from inflation to employment rates to income, right? And they have targeted goals that they're trying to hit because two, we need inflation. Like inflation's scary, but it's even scarier if you don't have it. The inflation is the primary way that our government lowers its overall debts. Meaning if I borrowed a thousand dollars today and every year we had 10% inflation, that debt is theoretically lowering by 10% every single year, right? So if my income's growing by 10% and that asset's worth 10% more, that debt, total, uh, that total debt to that value is dropping. Well, every year we have inflation, the United States' total debt to its income, that spread is getting bigger, therefore lowering the total impact of its debt. So the government will never stop doing this cycle. It's just how the world works, okay? But within it, almost all of this is fueled by debt you have to realize that so many people focus on the stock market. Well, the stock market today makes up 20, 18% of what the debt market is. So the stock market is nothing when you compare it to the debt market. And the debt market is the bond market. 
I mean, it is literally so small, it's almost irrelevant compared to the bond market. Yet, we have a lot of focus on that. This bond market, what happens is when people take out debt, all this debt, Wall Street and others, they collateralize this debt, they package it together, they send it out and sell it in the form of a bond. Every time we talk about this and every time I make a YouTube video about this or something like, oh, it's the next 2008. Oh, no, you're doing it again. And the government's doing it again. Everybody's <laughs> yeah. going to get burned. And you're like, you act like the stock market was invented in 2008. Like, no, you just learned about it in 2008. This is something that has been going on forever in the United States. This has been going on for centuries. I mean, debt was created a long, long time ago, but it was actually created in like a legal way and stuff. It was really Italy that started it. And the Romans and how they took debt and accounted for it, they, had a, they started the accounting system to use debt to grow and expand things. Um, this is something that's old as time. So we're not talking about like some new thing that's going to collapse the market um, because we all remember what happened in 2008 due to collateralized debt obligations, which are different from bond securities. I just have to make this very clear because I don't want somebody to say, oh, it's this another housing Ponzi scheme, right? That's not how it is. Everything that you're thinking of or that you watched on the big short or things like that, right? That nobody understood anyways, which you got to read the book. It's way better than the movie. But besides <laughs> the point, um, those are all insurance products, okay? So we're not going to get into anything like that. We're talking about money markets and the overall money supply and how debt works. So the key thing to take away from this is debt is controlled theoretically by the government or the pricing of debt. Debt is money and that is done by the central banking system, the Fed. They decide where to place interest rates, which says how much the cost of money is. And that's how we view it. Okay. So most people think of debt as in, oh, I took out debt to buy my new car. We have to stop thinking about debt as consumer debt. Well, I think one of the one of the things too to point out is there there are a lot of personalities out there in the finance financial advisory world that it is very easy to take you know the black or white approach to a lot of these things, um, and I think really almost any advice kind of comes off that way, whether yes. it's investing advice or it's advice on debt or finances or whatever. When when you hear a certain thing. There's a lot of us that just hear that and think, okay, well, that's what I got to do every time. Or that's, okay, that's good or that's bad. And I think a lot of us fail to realize how dynamic each and every one of those, you know, whether it's deals, whether it's financial structures, any of that kind of stuff. I think we fail to realize how dynamic and changing all of these things are, not only within the same time period across different assets, but with across time as well. Yes. And those things, I think... Again, I, whether it's by design or not, I think it's easy for uh, us to be driven down that path of like, all debt is bad. We yep. can't do it. Don't take it on. Pay everything cash. Do this. Do that. Um, which, by all means, that can be great strategies for all kinds of different aspects. But again, that debt difference between, uh, like you'd, you'd called it, was uh, consumer debt or revenue generating debt, like identifying the difference between those two and being able to 
recognize the good and the bad and at what point in time um it kind of makes me think of that video you posted the other day on uh your story on instagram yeah, yeah. you were talking about your house yes um i don't know if you want to talk about that here but yeah, it kind of well, makes it, me think of that actually that's probably a really good thing we can talk about here especially when we're talking about personal um as we move into business and the separation of these two debts how they work how they function so um you know what he's uh, uh, talking about is now, although I have a lot of debt, right. And I don't necessarily think that debt's a bad thing. I don't, I not necessarily. I, I just don't believe that. Um, and if that was true, our society would not exist. That's the first thing you have to understand. Society as we know, it would not exist without debt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the greatest actual revolutionary things that's ever happened in the history of man. I mean, it's literally akin to like farming. It it created an explosion of health and an explosion of of the ability to get products to people, life savings, vaccines, everything you can think of. This is caused through debt. It's literally, you know, one of the wonders of the world. Um, so. Well, that's a huge misconception too. I feel like so many people have is where you, they they look and see somebody successful or somebody they view as having a lot of money, and they think that these people are just paying all. They're just using their money to go out and buy all these businesses or invest in all these things, and that's that's just not the case. No, it's it's really not. Everything you touch in your life during the day, you know, it's. People don't use, and, and, and I don't, which comes here. Let me kind of, yeah, I'll walk you through kind of what Connor was talking about um, on uh, my my house. Um, what we were talking about here with um, my, my house is the way that I handle personal debt. And we can talk about this first because I think it's really important to get out of the way. Um, I grew up in not an anti-debt home, but a very clear distinction that not all debt is created equal and debt like a gun can kill you or it can feed your family, right? And that was kind of the environment that I grew up in. And we stood, we, we stayed away from personal debt, like completely. Um, we just didn't do it. it. Like a lot of us, some of us lived through and all of us are children of people that lived through a time when it it was hyperinflation had to be solved by rising interest rates, which then caused 16% interest rates. Um, and they were scarred by that. Um, it was very scarring. Uh, you know, like, it's just like, you just don't do that. You can't take, you can't, everybody's like, I got to buy a home in cash, right? Because the cost of money is so outrageous. You can't even afford anything anymore. Um, so, I grew up, and that's how my parents were. Their first little home they bought for us, they were paying sixteen percent interest rate. Like it was so, everything they made just went to paying off the house, everything, mm-hmm. and they paid it off as quick as they could. Um, now the two sides of debt that we have, or well, there's a few different aspects we're going to talk about. When it comes to consumer debt and personal debt, my very simple rule is only my house, and. Um, I don't have debt on my cars, but that's, I don't believe that that's necessarily a bad thing. Like you need cars to drive. That's a part of society. Uh, if you live in Idaho, 
you don't have a car, you, you can't live. You can't do anything. So I <laughs> or get, a horse. Exactly. So I'm okay with uh, cars and death, but anything that I would, trips, any consumer items, that's that's a, just a 100% no. Credit card debt, no. Um, it, now, I have, I use credit cards to build credit, but I have a 30, so here's my, my, my rule of three. 30 days in three years, okay? 30 days on any credit card debt. I mean, I use my credit card to buy everything. I don't, I only use a credit card for safety reasons and credit reasons, but I don't buy anything that I'm not paying off within that 30 days. It's immediately paid off, right? Now, my other, my rule of 30 and my rule of three. My rule of three is three years, and that's with my home. And what I looked at is my leftover cash after my income. If I took it or after my um, core expenses, right, your food or whatnot, that leftover inch income should be able to pay off my house in three years. So if something happened that I needed to do, I could pay it off in three years. Really, what that did is it kept the, kept my debt to income level in check and it allowed me to have plans. Now, in reality, that's not how it worked. And I get, if you're listening to this, be like, well, that's impossible. I, I get it. If you're starting out, that's probably impossible for people. It should That, to me, should be a goal. And that what it really is for me, though, too, is that 100% applies to luxury items. I'm currently building a house that I do not need. Um, I want it, and so I'm building it, and I'm going to live in it because it's <laughs> awesome. But I don't need it. It is cool. And it is so, cool. It, like, when I look at that... Like I, I expect myself to never over leverage. And so it's less than, you know, the payments are less than literally 10% of my income. So when you're dealing with anything luxury, even in a home, my rules change. So my rule of three has to do with that, that um, short-term and long-term debt. Um, this is not a rule that I use in business, right? And in business, everything that I believe or think about debt changes completely how I use it and how I utilize it. So there needs to be a very clear distinguishing event on business and personal. Um, 30 year mortgages are amazing because you know that if you can afford it, cash flow, and it's a low part of percentage of your income, you should never do things that are like over 30% of your income, that stuff. But you know that in 30 years it's paid off. So there's an actual end date to that. That's not how most debt works. So most debt needs to be turned over, right? So it has to be turned over in the markets. That means in 10 years, in five years, in 20 years, that loan is done and I have to get a new loan to replace it because it's not paid off for. This builds in a whole new thing of risk, right? So now that I kind of talked about personal finance and how I feel about debt there, let's move into business and why debt's important, what it means. Not all debt in business is the same. And this comes down to, we're looking at the overall risk that debt carries. Um, you're looking at the amount um, and how it's applied. Now, when we're looking at physical assets that are cash flowing, revenue producing, these are obviously the best things to use debt towards. Um, you, most of the time they have a history. You can see um, inflation helps them. It lowers your cost. You know that you know you can measure demand and really what the physical assets that are cash flowing has to do with it's a measurable way to understand risk 
Now, does that mean you should use it at all? No, some assets will not increase in value. Let me give you an example. There are a huge amount of cities in the United States that are shrinking. So if I go buy a brand new building, that's an apartment building or whatnot, and I take out debt and it's the highest time the markets have ever been and I'm buying it at a four cap and I'm buying it at the highest times that uh, we have in rent and we have a credit crisis and we have a collapse and you're in a city that is shrinking, those cities exaggerate those 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 uh, cycles in the market, right? So when it gets bad, those cities really get harmed. They really get hurt and they contract. Um, but they don't rebound most of the time. So your building could literally be worth less in 10, 15 years than when you buy it today. It makes me think of Detroit when you're talking yeah. about that. Exactly. Yeah. And so many people lost so much in assets. So when you're dealing with physical cash flowing assets, people are like, oh, that's safe. It's only safe as it's only as safe as the microeconomics support the revenue of the asset. Because you have to remember that the only thing that delivers value on um, assets is revenue. So you valuate assets on revenue and security. Those are the two things, okay? Revenue, how much does it produce? And this is, we represent this in the form of a cap rate, right? So low cap rates, a cap rate represents how much money you're gonna get after you buy it and pay expenses, how much return on your investment you're gonna get. So if I buy it for X after expenses, I make X and that's re represented in the form of a cap rate, okay? So a zero cap is break even. This is the easiest way to think of that, right? A high cap rate means you're increasing your cash flow. Now, this is without the use of debt. So a 10 cap is, let's say, a 10% return if I didn't use debt. You use debt and that's a much higher return because your debt is at a such a low cost. I'm not going to go too far down into that right now. But that's <laughs> the point being is that's how we measure um, value is on that revenue. Now, the other part of it is security. How secure are those revenue flows? And how secure do I believe they'll be in the future? So if I believe that the revenue is going to rise in the future, and I believe that they're never going to stop paying me, that people are willing to pay a really low cap rate. I'm willing to get a really low return now because I can fix my cost. Those revenues will grow over the years. And what today is a three cap in 10 years may be a 15 cap, right? And I'm going to get all this value and it's going to be cash flowing like crazy. And I'm so sure of the future that I'm going to pay that. Think of retail in the early 2000s. Right? And the reason I use that example is because, yes, you're like, but retail is a horrible example because now it's doing so poorly. Exactly. That's why I'm using the example, actually, because it shows how some people get this wrong. And even though that was a standard asset that could be amazing, the asset is only worth and predicated on the revenues it built. So even in growing markets, those assets failed to perform and their revenue declined because there was no one to rent from them and they lost value. Okay. That gives you an idea of how real estate, and especially commercial real estate works and how we value it. Now, can you give yeah. real quick, uh, just examples of that, like just talking security and those microeconomic factors, what, some examples of, of what those are exactly? 100%. When you look at micro things that affect it, so all commercial real estate, let's take um, storage, industrial, apartments, hotels, and retail. All right, so we're taking five. Um, these five, okay, 
So if you look, we'll start with apartment buildings, right? Um, when you're looking at apartment buildings, you need people moving in. So there's higher demand for housing. You need incomes that are rising. So there's higher, de- uh, there's higher ability to pay and pay more, right? Um, and there's other things that can be constructed space, maybe the housing market, right? It's so high right now, more people are renting, but really you're looking for a growing market as in growing in people incomes, and you're looking for low supply that equals high demand, right? And so you believe, okay, there's, there's demand here. People are going to keep moving in, right? They still need a place to live. Their incomes are still rising and they have nowhere to live. So if I build this, I can or if I buy this, I will be able to continue to raise prices. Um, industrial. There's a lack of industrial, meaning like light industrial. We're talking like flex space that businesses meet, need. There's all these businesses that need a place to work out of, deliver products, whatever that may be. Um, yet there's no space available. So that's high demand. We have more people moving in. More people are starting up businesses. And I believe this, this will continue to grow. Um, hotels. Uh, you're looking at limitation, destination, travel trends, where can people move, how can they move, which this gets totally crazy when you're talking about coronavirus, right? Uh, but we need disposable incomes to be high so people can travel. You want that to be good health. So when times are good, hotels do really, really good. But vice versa, when times are bad, hotels really, really suffer. That's why you have to have less, you, can't, you take less debt out. Banks will give less debt on hotels than they'll give on others. Why? Because the cash flows are not as predictable. That comes to the security part. Remember we talked about? So then you move to storage. Same thing. You need movement, housing turnover. You need and little availability or little supply on the market to create high demand. Um, What was another? Oh, retail. Retail has to do with consumers. What's their disposable income? What are they consuming? But most of all, it has to do with contracts. This has to do with the contracts that are in place and the um, likelihood or the viability of the business to continue to pay that contract, right? These are longer term contracts. You're building big space, lots of developers, lots of people will build only to suit. I can judge the business, how profitable is, how, how much will it be? So I can know that this 10 year contract is reasonable. I can expect it and I can build in from the start those price increases, then as long as that business is okay, I have a clear map on where I'll be in 10 years. That's why in the early 2000s, retail was considered so good because it would trade a really low cap rate because you could look at the contract and I could immediately see how much it would increase. It's easy to know, right? And as long as I thought Shopco would never go out of business, which back then nobody thought Shopco could ever go out of business, right? Because it was such a staple in how we lived life. Um, It was literally almost like a utility. Uh, Then it was really stable. So when you look at commercial assets, right? You have all these ways to measure demand. You have local, you look at demographics, income. All this applies into how viable those were. Now we lay over debt. Most things in commercial real estate, you cannot pay for on your own. And if you did, you would get so little return, it would be a horrible, horrible use of capital. So we overlay. Do you want to debt. say why that is? Yes. So why is that bad? Like, a yeah. So if you look at like a three cap, right? So people are buying things at three cap. That means if I buy a building for $10 million, I'm going to get a 3% return on that $10 million. 
Um, that's a really, really low return. And two, it's risky in comparison to what I could get, say, in treasury bills or bond markets, right? That's, so it's a comparison of risk versus reward. Now, let's say, though, that I'm buying something for um, a three cap, but I'm putting I'm, three caps, a bad example. That's so low. Let's say a five cap. I get a 5% return, but then I'm going to overlay debt and the cost of my debt is 3%. I have another 2% spread now on it. I have to put less capital, I have less risk, and the cost of money is lower than how much money I'm even gonna make. So now instead of getting a 5% 5 return, I'm getting an 8, 9, 10% return, depending on lots of different things. So that's why in commercial real estate, they use debt. And that's why businesses use debt. If I can buy a product and I can use this much debt and I can sell it for this huge amount and then pay off the debt, Right, I can take a little dollars and make more products and sell them. And as long as I'm confident in the turnover of those products. Um, when you're dealing in business, when um, when you're dealing in, in, in business and investing, uh, debt is our lifeblood. I just love this too, because it's just like, it's, it's these perfect examples like this of where it's using debt as a huge boost to uh, your returns and your investments, and it's just that it's just like breaks the mold. Yes, <laughs> that everybody's so it's used to hearing. Powerful. It, it really is because you're you really get the wheels turning and thinking like, wow, like that additional two percent on whatever is huge, huge, massive. And if you look at too, when you start really looking, and too, it could be four percent, five percent spread, yeah, more, right? Mm -hmm. Because maybe you don't have to pay. To give you any idea, we were, were we bought an asset that gave uh, was giving us a twenty percent internal rate of return last month. We closed on it. Um, we got our first year interest only from our debt, right? Um, out of our, our debt agreement. Uh, that change took it from a 20% IRR to a 27% internal rate of return. And we were like three points off of making a 30% higher return. All because of one year in this big, huge debt cycle. Um, it, it's, it's powerful stuff that can create millions, huge wealth, and lots of cash flow. Now that's all exciting, everything else. Let's talk about risk. This I saved for last because this is really what it all comes down to for most people, okay? When you're talking about debt, the reason why debt scares people is because of something we call it personal guaranteed, right? We have contracts that make us liable for decisions and things that we do, right? It's a form of responsibility and accountability that is necessary. That is how debt markets can actually survive. If people weren't responsible for debt, none of these markets would function or work, right? Now, there's a whole nother world though of debt and how you can get rid of your personal liability, which we're gonna talk about. But the personal liability, which is called a personal guarantee on debt, long-term debt, business debt, that is scary. That means if you don't pay, they can go after you for whatever that debt was. And because debt's a form of leverage, you probably don't have it. And they seize everything. Bank accounts, home, you're ruined. 
you're financially ruined. And everybody shudders and gets scared. Um, and rightfully so. It's scary. And it should be. If you're not scared of debt, you don't understand it. Right? It's like, once again, I come back to the analogy of a gun. If you give a gun to somebody and they're not scared of that gun, get it away from them. They don't respect the power of the tool. And they shouldn't yield it. The same thing is with debt. If you don't respect the power of the tool, you shouldn't yield it. Now, with that said, there are ways to massively minimize the impact of debt and how you do it. I often use the analogy that today at over 150 million in assets, I have less liability than we and we had a few million. That fundamentally doesn't make a lot of sense to people, right? that your debt has exploded into whatever it is, 50 million right now, right? Uh, versus 2 million. Well, how, how does that work? How can, how can you go from 2 million to 50 million, yet you have less risk? In commercial assets, we're looping this all the way back to the first, everybody. <laughs> we're coming all the way back around. This is a big circle of debt we're talking about. We talked about these capital markets. Now, if you remember, I talked about the bond market. Now, debt or the stock market means nothing compared to the bond market, right? Um, the bond market is whatever is 50, 60 trillion dollars today, and the stock market's I don't know, 10, 15. I should, should have looked this up, but the point being is it's a fraction of the bond market. The bond market's huge, 50 trillion dollars, let's call it. Um, in the bond market, that, what a bond is, is all that debt, like I said, put together and then sold. Now, when it sells, the risk of the debt goes to the person that buys the bond. They take the risk and they get paid for it. So what we do with our debt is we collateralize our debt, we package it up, it gets packaged into a bond, and then it gets sold to investors. Those investors take the liability and risk from that bond and my asset going under. I no longer personally take on that risk. So that means I own the asset and just like getting a bank loan, I get a loan from, we use CMBS loans. Insurance companies do this, there's other means, but uh, the CMBS market is the primary market where this happens. Um, and once again, it's the biggest market in the world. Uh, they collateralize that debt. They package it with other people's debt. I'm going to pay 3%. They sell it off into the bond market and the bondholders get that return now. In which that bond is guaranteed by the asset, not by me. I'm not guaranteeing that loan anymore. So now I'm no longer personally guaranteed. And if that asset fails, we have a great recession. It stops performing. I hand the keys back to the bank and I walk away. Now, let me tell you how we utilize this tool. At first, I take on the debt. So, right. Um, now, I use the example that I have less risk when I had 2 million, and I do 15 million, how you do it. Okay. That's, that's not entirely true. It's not entirely true from the fact that I have more than $2 million that I'm personally liable for. But as far as a ratio to my assets to income, it's astronomically exaggerated because what we do is I take on that liability when I first buy it, we 
have the asset, it's cash flowing, it's a good stable cash flowing asset, we improve it, we have a value add system, which means we increase the revenues, because increasing revenues increases the valuation, we refinance that into a non recourse loan, which means I no longer am liable. Then from there, that wealth that spread in the last loan in the new loan, we pay off the old loan with this new CMBS debt. So the old loans paid off goes away. And then the new debt, which is higher than the last one, what's left over comes to me. So let's say I buy a storage facility and I put down $2 million of my own money and I have $3 million in debt. We improve the cash flows by 30%, 40%, whatever that number is, right? We go and we refinance it. We take out a new loan for $5 million. We pay off the old loan for $3 million. And then I take the other $2 million from the debt back. That debt now, that $5 million debt, my debt to equity ratio hasn't changed. So the risk on the asset is the exact same as when I bought it. It hasn't changed at all. The risk on me has almost evaporated in the form they can't come after me unless I do fraud, unless I'm illegal, right? But if it fails, it fails and I hand the keys back. I got my $2 million back. Now, if I raise it even more to six, seven million, I can double my money, right? And get it back. I haven't changed the risk on the cash flow to the debt equity. And the money that comes back to me comes back to me tax-free. So I get a hundred percent return, meaning I extract all my capital out of the asset, plus the profit that I get which can be millions. I get all of that, it comes back to me tax-free, and I get rid of all of my risk. This is the tool that has allowed us to amass so much commercial real estate and continues to. Why we're developing tens of millions of real estate and buying tens of millions of real estate. It's this cycle that is the commercial, uh, I call it my commercial real estate wealth cycle, because I buy, I improve, I take out, I get all my money tax-free, plus I get the deductions off my income that I'm making, which comes from cash flow from the assets, and I get rid of risk. So as I grow, my income, my wealth is rising, but systematically, my risk is decreasing. So at any given point, I have those new facilities that I'm buying or turning around that I owe on. But the entire rest of the portfolio, let's call that you know, 120 million or whatever that is, I don't own risk on at all. So it's a fraction compared to the income and the total wealth. Um, this is a proper use of de debt. You can see I understand the power of debt. I know I need to get rid of that personal risk and liability. And I need to make sure it's stable, safe assets, growing markets. We do a lot of work to protect ourselves. Um, but I also see how, if I can do that, it can create massive wealth, massive holdings, massive income. This is so different from personal finance. I can't do anything like that personally. So then personally, my, I mean, until as of right now, so even with my last house, my, the debt that I held on my last house, I had more money in my bank account than I did on my debt. So in one aspect, I'm very conservative against debt. I, it makes me super nervous because I, it, I get the power of it and I get how dangerous that is. But then in another aspect, I'm using the power of it to its fullest extent. 
This is the relationship of debt. This is how it works. This is how it works in capital markets, right? And these are the things you think through. You can see it is not a straight line thing. All debt is bad. How is the debt bad if I don't personally owe anything? I have all my money out of it and it pays me a lot of money every single month. You think that's worse than having a, you know, a car, a W-2 or not having debt at all and not growing mm-hmm. and then not diversifying your income in case something happens. That's not logical. It doesn't even make sense, right? So there's a lot of people out there and a lot of mega wealthy people that they, they literally have less risk than a normal American that may not even have debt. They still have less risk. They have diversified incomes, diversified holdings, right? Their money is working for them. The economy is working for them. And the U.S. government is working for them by creating inflation and devaluing money while simultaneously de- uh, decreasing their debt and increasing their, inco- their income. Debt is how you use the power of the United States government to make you wealthy. And they do a really good job of it. <laughs> like a really good job. So in one aspect, the United States government's working against you. And the other aspect is working for you. Yeah, are you playing or you're not? Yeah. You know, you've talked about that before too. Like, are you getting involved? Are you, you making the decisions to to actually play and, and, and participate in the game? Or are you on the sidelines just... It, it, it's, that's almost not even the correct analogy because you don't even realize you're watching a game. Yeah. Like... You don't even know. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing. No, it's... Um, so many good points. Yeah. And so I, I, I look at that and I want to discourage people that have straight line, debt's bad or good. We do not live in a world that is not nuanced. And most people that say that, they have no idea that you can get rid of risk with debt. They have no idea how all of this world even works. And it's when you say things like that, what you're saying is, I'm no longer going to think about this. That's never a good alternative. You should explore things very deeply. You should really try to understand them, see if there's alternative ways, everything like that. It's not black and white. And people that make these black and white rules, all they're doing is shielding themselves from opportunity and lack of understanding and also danger. Because what you don't understand is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, yeah, I've got a couple things here I wanted to also tell along this line. There's a couple books that I think everybody should read. Um, that's the Anything by Ray Dalio uh, is amazing, but his Big Debt Crisis is, is like an amazing, amazing book. And then also Against the Gods. So Against the Gods is a book of risk. And it's the story of the world and risk. And they talk about debt and how debt is used. Because when you're talking about debt, you need to understand risk. Um, It is a very thick book. It is, uh, you're going to learn uh, way, way more than you ever uh, wanted to know about Cardiano's uh, mathematics. 
um, the Great Error that appeared in 1545, and other things that you've never heard of in your life. Uh, but <laughs> it is it's good stuff. It's it's good stuff. You, you got to power through it. I'm not going to lie. Who's it's the a, author? It's a little drier book. Uh, so this is Peter L. Bernstein that wrote this book. Gotcha. Um, but it will really, really help you to understand particularly how debt's formed, why it's formed. Um, so, yeah, I hope this discussion helps. It's, it's You're entering into a weird world of AJ's brain where he thinks about a lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, Hope you all enjoy the tour. Yeah, uh, exactly. Now, uh, when, pe- when my wife looks over me at the couch as they're doing something and I'm staring at a wall and she's like, what are you thinking about? You now know. Uh, so this, this is what I spend my time thinking about. Um, but it's you, you really, the more you study, the more opportunity comes and the safer you can be. Now, we talk about these macroeconomics and everything. I really want to emphasize this, though. This is so important that this is all predicated on the sustainability of the individual asset. Okay. Um, the micro part of what we do is where we spend 90% of our time. These big things that have made massive impacts, this comes from knowledge, education, this comes from understanding things, which I spend a huge amount of time personally on, but it only I can only use that tool if I have built a system to execute, stabilize cash flows and grow them on an individual asset, and I make good decisions when I'm buying assets. So the knowledge is only as good as the application of the knowledge and the application comes through microeconomics that comes through understanding cash flows improving it so it's a two-sided story today we just spent one side where lots of times on these podcasts we spend most of our time on the other side particularly in the self-storage income side we talk a lot about analyzing markets operations things like that that's that other side of it and that's why we thought it would be good today to to, to kind of break down and talk about this opposite side of the coin. I know it was such a good discussion. I think there's been a lot of aha moments in here for a lot of people and just pulling back the veil and giving an in-depth look into these different aspects of debt and these different markets and how people can get in and start participating, all that good stuff. Absolutely love it. Is there any other awesome stuff we want to share? Any any exciting news going on? Um, We did roll out the CRE circle. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. You know, yeah. we're talking about learning and building and applying all these kinds of things. And uh, with that, I think is a huge portion of that is building a community of people yes. around you that also they've got a like mindset. They're also learning. They're on the same trajectory. And again, you know, like AJ's always talking about here, that uh, success is not created on an island. And none of this... You, AJ didn't do you know any of this on his own. Nope. Uh, none of us do, and uh, that's really a huge foundation and, and reason as to why the CRE circle exists. Yes. If you want to kind of jump into what the CRE circle yeah, the, is, the or, CRE circle re- really we've just built a community for people getting into commercial real estate, um, and it's predicated you know on coaching community and um, resources like tools um, and that everything from video stuff, but it's, it, it is really about the community. We have lots of education stuff in there, but I mean, we launched it 
and first week over 100 people are getting we're well over 100 people and people are storming in um anyways it's awesome join the community we're holding everything from conferences to all sorts of stuff it's been blowing up we couldn't be more excited about it and what's going on you can find that on aj osborne you can go onto the ajosborne.com it's right on that community circle i'll but put a link in the show notes too yeah, yeah. Put a link in the show notes and we talk a lot in there about debt who's seeing what right because debt isn't a straight line thing too that's another thing everybody needs to understand like it, debt isn't like oh what do you get debt at today like we like we so when we go out and talk to banks, they're like, "Well, here's our terms." We get them and we cut them up and scratch them and say, "No, this is what we want." We we actually negotiate how our debt will work. It's so different from consumer debt when you have no say, you don't get anything, you just take it. That's not how higher level de- debt works at all. So we're negotiating with three or four banks, and we're negotiating terms, we're negotiating interest rates and service and everything else like that. So a lot, even in the community, we're talking about what banks are doing what and how you're, who's giving what and how you can get it. So uh, this is obviously, this whole discussion is a big part of commercial real estate. It's a huge part of it. Um, and so knowing options is really important. And that's what we wanted to build, knowledge, tools, um, and community. And we're excited about it. So check it out. Awesome, awesome, guys. Thanks so much for joining in and stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>